Bibles and turn with me to the ninth chapter of Hebrews, again in verse 15. The ninth chapter of Hebrews, beginning in verse 15. This is, it's been a rather interesting week. I don't know if it uh, has been for you or not, but just a lot of things happening. Uh, if you were here Wednesday night, uh, you know that I explained uh, a portion of the Apostles' Creed that Evidently caused some great consternation uh, last Wednesday or last Sunday night when we read it. That being the last uh, there toward the end where it says, "And I believe in the Holy Catholic Church." And uh, I thought everybody knew we were moving from being Grace Baptist to Grace Catholic. I just thought that was a uh, an understanding we had, but I guess I was wrong. No. I explained, I, don't, I won't go into the whole detail now, but there's maybe some of you here who were there and, and weren't here Wednesday night, that Catholic in the creed means comprehensive or universal or complete. And when it speaks about that, it's talking about the fact that we acknowledge that we're not just all there is, that there's a great host of witnesses out there, as, as the writer of Hebrews will later say, there's a great host of witnesses that have gone before us and they belong to the church of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, just like we do. And there are a host of believers in the world today who, though they may not come to Grace Baptist, they may not be Southern Baptist, they may not even be Baptist, that they know Christ, and thus by their knowledge of Christ, they're being in this that we've been talking about for the last several weeks in Hebrews, being in the new covenant, then they are a covenant people with Christ, and so they are a part of the church a part of the universal church. Notice in the creed, it's in a little c, not a capital C. And realize that the creed predated the Roman church by several hundred years. So uh, the reality is that uh, it's a great creed, and we'll, I will deal with that in depth in a few weeks when we get to that phrase, but just to uh, assuage, assuage, to settle, assuage, thank you, so glad to have an English teacher here. To assuage any anxiety, I wanted to, uh, to be able to say that this morning. I thought it was a sausage, but whatever. Assuage, all right. All right. Second thing is, if that weren't enough, the second thing is this week we had the declaration and the uh, uh, statement made that, that really I, I'm surprised you all were even here this morning uh, to be here in worship because... Uh, one of the renowned physicists of our generation, uh, Dr. Stephen Hawking, has uh, declared that God is no longer necessary, that God is irrelevant. I, I really never thought I would agree with anything I read in the Huffington Post, to be honest with you, if you're aware of the Huffington Post. But I did read a, uh, a headline that I, oh, I didn't bring it with me. I left it back there. But the headline said, God, uh, Hawking declares God unnecessary. God says to Hawking, so you don't know who I am. And I thought that was a pretty good response to, uh, to Hawking. Uh, another person uh, had a headline this week said, Hawking declares God unnecessary. God has already declared Hawking unnecessary. <laughs> so um, a lot going on. It's kind of an interesting time to live. Uh, when, when we live in a day where Science is being elevated so high that everything that would tend to be said in science, whether it's provable or, or, or determined or not, is accepted as reality. 
We're living in a day when, when if a scientist speaks, like a Stephen Hawking in his book, comes out this Tuesday, I understand, uh, entitled The Grand Design. But basically his theory, as I understand it from the articles I've read about it, is that the creation took place not by an act of God, not even as some of the theistic evolutionists would say, by the act of God over billions of years, but that the creation took place because time and force was there. And if you take force... Wherever the force came from, I guess it's the force. I don't know. But wherever for, but that would be God, I guess, if there were really a... Anyway, uh, if, there was force that just took a lot of time, and once you had plenty of time and plenty of force, all of a sudden, everything that is, is now here. Uh, in other words, we don't need God to bring something out of nothing. You just need force and time to bring something out of nothing, but if you had force and time, there was something, so you didn't have nothing, so it had to come out of something. Now, am I making myself clear here? It's about as clear as the scientists uh, that, that make these grand declarations. But we do live in a day that's kind of interesting because, because science and scientists have, have been elevated to some kind of priesthood almost or some kind of, some kind of uh, popery uh, in our own day where when they speak, it's like speaking ex-cathedra. It's like speaking from the throne. It's like speaking with all authority. And we not only run into that with, with the, the secularists like a Stephen Hawking, but then you have other groups like the, the Biologos bio group, which is supposedly a group of Christians who are working out of, uh, out of New York City. And, and there's Dr. Francis Collins, who discovered the human geome and is one of the most respected men in the area of science there is, who also professes to be a Christian, has basically come now and said, well, we do believe in God, and we do believe that God created, but we really believe that God just sort of created through natural means. And you're back to theistic evolution again. God didn't really have a direct hand in it. He just sort of took his time and watched it happen and looked over it and, and, and God was pleased with everything he saw. And, and even to the point that now the BioLogos group is saying, and you know, it, it does cause a problem with a historical Adam and a historical Eve, but for us that's no problem. Well, biblically that's a problem. Because if you don't have a historical Adam, you don't have a historical Eve, if you don't have a historical fall into sin, then you have no need for a new covenant. You have no need for a covenant at all. If there's no Adam, no Eve, no fall, no creation by God, if God is just a cosmic idea that somebody came up with to sort of try and understand some things that really ought to be understood through natural selection and natural order, then, then for crying out loud, if there is no fall, there is no sin. If there is no sin, there is no need for a redeemer. And if there is no need for a redeemer, let's go barbecue and get out of here. I mean, because there's no meaning to any of this. Because in reality, if you have no creator God, no Adam and Eve, no fall, no sin, and no death of Christ, and, uh, because it had been unnecessary, just been a, a, a man dying, you had no resurrection. Wow. All of a sudden, the chain of events had brought us to no resurrection to which Jesus, or, or Paul said about Jesus' resurrection, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, if there is no literal resurrection of Christ, then our faith is in vain, our preaching is in vain, and what we're doing is in vain. Let's just go home and do our own thing. It's amazing that many Christians even buy into that sort of gobbledygook. 
But what the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to understand as clearly as we possibly can is that there was a creator. There was historical figures who fell into sin and were, our, if you will, our federal head, our, our representative in the fall. And in them we fell, and because of their fall and our inheriting the sin nature, then we now have a need for a redeemer. We have a need for a covenant. We have a need for God taking action. We have a need for God doing something that we cannot and could not ever do for ourselves. We are absolutely in need of God. If God is now irrelevant, as Hawking would have us believe, then everything we say we believe is absolutely irrelevant. But we have a God who not only created, who not only saw the fall and has to deal with sin, but we have a God who did deal with it. We have a God who revealed himself in Christ Jesus and revealed himself in his word that we might know him. And that's really what the whole concept of this new covenant that the writer of Hebrews is concerned about and concerned that we understand. And I really do think the writer of Hebrews in the passage we're going to read this morning and look at for a few minutes this morning basically says that Hawking is really irrelevant and unnecessary. Listen as I begin reading in verse 15. Chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, now for this reason, he's referring back to everything from, I think, chapter 8, verse 1, when he's talking about the new covenant. He's still, he's bringing this discussion of the new covenant to a close, but he's still talking about it. So for this reason, because of the new covenant, because of eternal redemption, because of your cleansed conscience, for this reason, he, that is Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Now, I want you to see an a, a interpretation or a translation problem here. If you're reading in New American Standard, if you're reading in the uh, uh, King James Version, the word covenant continues on through there. But the, the word covenant can have several meanings. It can mean covenant. It can mean testament. We talk about the, the Old and the New Testament. They come from the word covenant, the Old and the New Covenant. It can also mean will, W-I-L-L, -L, like a last will and testament. And if you're looking at the, the ESV, the English Standard Version, you see there that it translates it. And, and for, uh, if, uh, for, for if there is a will there must of necessity be a death of the one who made it. And that's what he's talking about here. There's a subtle change of, in, uh, of, of inflection, a subtle change of, of teaching here that we must understand. The covenant still stands by the blood of Christ, but now there is a will that because Christ has died, he has willed something to those who are his disciples. He has willed something to those who are in the new covenant. He has willed to them th this idea of an eternal inheritance. For where there is a covenant, where there is a will, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. I'll come back to that. Verse 17. For a covenant or a will is valid only when men are dead. 
for it is never in force while, while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the, the holy place year by year with, with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of all the ages, he has been made manifested and put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. And there's a lot in that passage. There's a, there's a lot that we can talk about in unfolding, unpacking this particular package, but really there are only three things I want you to see that flow out of these verses that we just read. First of all, there in verses 15 and 16, and 16 and 17 actually, a will demands a death. A covenant demands a death for it to be ratified, for it to be beneficial, for it to be fulfilled. You know that. Many of you sitting in this room, I hope all of you sitting in this room, uh, if you are especially approaching my age, but it's even better at a younger age, but I hope you have a will. Uh, I have a will. Red and I together have a will that, that says that uh, when we're gone from here, certain things will transpire with what, our possession, what, what possessions we have. Now, in our case, it won't be a whole lot. But it does tell what will take place when the will is executed. But the will is of no value to those who are beneficiaries until both of us have died. When we have died... The will is, is then becomes an instrument of distribution of our possessions. And our children and other, other ministries will, will benefit from our death. But, but if, if we don't die, if, if we outlive our kids and outlive other things, then the will is, is a, not a whole lot of use to anybody because it's still ours and always will be. What the writer of Hebrews here is saying is that it required the death of Christ for the covenant, the new covenant, 
to be enacted. The new covenant is that relationship we talked about between God and man that is established, that cares about the knowledge of God, that cares about the forgiveness of sin, that cares about everybody within the covenant relationship, having that relationship with God. There's no one in the covenant that doesn't know God. There is this glorious truth of what it means to be in the new covenant. But for that new covenant to be established in the right way, in the proper way, it required the death of the one who was establishing it. It required the death of the mediator. Christ was the mediator between the blessings of God, or as he puts it here, uh, the eternal inheritance, which is our salvation, which is our relationship with God. Jesus Christ was that mediator of this new covenant between God and man. And, and until he died, that covenant was not completed. Now, he's just using an illustration here right out of what the people would have understood. He's not making any kind of great new theological pronouncement here. He's already talked about the death of Christ. He's already talked about the, the, the covenant is established in the blood of Christ. But here he's just trying to illustrate it and say, help you to see and help me to see, help us all to understand that in order for the covenant, in order for the will to be effective in your life and my life, it required a death. Now, we have the great understanding and knowledge that God will never die. So there was something else that had to, had to bring about that relationship, and it was the death of his only begotten son. Now, don't get all caught up here and struggling with, okay, the Trinity here. I mean, you can do that. You can say, wait a minute. Uh, well, well, if Jesus was God and, and God can't die, how did Jesus die? And people have struggled with that all along. Uh, those are things you take by faith based on the Scriptures and just understand that Christ died in order to secure for those who believe, for those who are his children, for those who are his disciples, he died to secure an eternal inheritance. The covenant, the will, for it to be established required a death. Second thing he makes clear is found in verses 18 through 22. And he makes it clear there that blood is necessary for forgiveness. That, that forgiveness demands that blood be shed. And in those verses, he said, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Now it was blood of bulls and heifers and goats and sheep and all of those kind of things. But it was, it was established through that by calves and goats in order for there to be a blood sacrifice that was really predating and looking forward to the shedding of Christ's blood. It's important to see that. Forgiveness demands blood be shed. It's amazing what the writer talks about here, how Moses went about doing this. He killed them. He took the blood of those animals. He took scarlet wool and hyssop, a kind of a, a sponge-type thing, and, and he sprinkled... Uh, filled those with the blood and he sprinkled the book of the covenant and then he sprinkled all the people. I mean, I, I don't want to get too graphic here, but it must have been a real mess. I mean, it must have really been, you know, I, I, I've got a daughter that if she cuts her finger, she passes out. Just a sight of a little blood. I can't imagine what people might have been doing as Moses going about sprinkling them with the blood of these animals. It was not a pretty sight. It was not a, 
it was not a celebration service like we would think what would be really fun and really exciting in worship. It was a time of a very solemn understanding that, that God has given a covenant and, and it was a conditional covenant, but that covenant itself could not bring any forgiveness unless there is blood shed. And so in this case, there are sacrifices that are shed that point to the great sacrifice that is yet to come. I'm asked all the time by a lot of different people, how were Old Testament saints saved? Or, or were they saved? Were people in the Old Testament truly saved to eternal life in the same way we are, are in the same light or, or the sa same kind of salvation that we have in the New Covenant? And my answer is yes, they were. Well, how does that happen? And, and usually I will ask them back, well, how do you think it happens? So, well, it, it seems like it happens by their obeying the law. If they can keep the law and obey it uh, good enough, then God will say to those before Christ, then you're all right, come on in. And, and I have to look them in the face and say, nothing could be further from the truth. The law didn't save anybody. Obedience to the law cannot save anybody, primarily because we can't be obedient to the law. Primarily because that is a, a stark impossibility for us to say that we're going to obey the law, we're going to do right, we're going to do good, we're going to obey God completely is an absolute impossibility because of the fall. Old Testament saints had this blood in these sacrifices. Those sacrifices were pointing forward to other blood that would be shed uh, through Jesus Christ on the cross. So that blood was a representative blood and their faith was not in the blood of the goat. Their, their faith was not in the blood of the calves. Their faith was in the blood that was yet promised in the covenant with God through his son Jesus Christ, through the Messiah. They were saved by believing in Christ. They didn't know it was Jesus. They didn't know I mean, they, they knew through prophecy he was going to be born in Bethlehem. They knew in prophecy where his ministry was going to be and, and some things, but they didn't know that his name, that he was going to be the son of Mary with a stepfather named Joseph. They didn't know that, but they knew that God's promises were real. They knew that God's promises were sure, and their faith was not in calves and goats and, and even the high priest. Their faith was in what all that represented, that which was yet to come. Their faith was in Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah that was yet to come, who would shed his blood. He said in verse 20, he quotes the Old Testament, he says, this is the blood of the covenant which God commands you. He quotes Moses there. And the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and the vessels. As we showed the picture of the tabernacle with all the different vessels in it, the, the, the laver and the, the bronze laver and the, the table of showbread and the, the, the candles for light. And he went through there and, and he shook, Moses shook blood on all those things to cleanse them. And according to the law, one may almost say, I, gotta, I, I wonder how almost goes here, but one, according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Folks, that's why we always come back to the cross of Christ. That's why, as we saw in our study of the Apostles' Creed the other night, that the cross is central. The death of Christ is 
necessary. There are a lot of people today who will say, well, why did, why did God have to crucify Christ? Why did, why did God have to send his son to the cross? I mean, come on, God is God. Couldn't he just say, oh, you're forgiven, no big deal? No, he couldn't. It's for the reason that Paul dealt with in Romans chapter 3 and beyond where he talks about God is a just God. God is a righteous God. God must be just in all cases. And to be just, he cannot just wink at sin and say, oh, no big deal. You're forgiven. There has to be a payment. And Jesus Christ was that payment. Jesus Christ's blood and death was that payment. And had he not died, I say to you uncategorically and as boldly as I can, had he not died, there would be no forgiveness of sin at all. And that's what the writer wants you to see. And then he talks about, you know, the, the real tabernacle that's in heaven as opposed to the, the mere copy of the true one that's here on earth and and all of that is just to say, listen, we have now entered into a relationship with him who has established the real one. And so we don't need the old. We don't need the copy anymore because we see the reality of the, of the fullness of truth. And then finally, I want you to see that the writer here says that not only does will a will or a covenant demand a death, not only is forgiveness, does forgiveness demand blood and a sacrifice there, but judgment requires a substitute. Again, we come back to that question that people ask. Well, why did God, why, why would God only accept Jesus as a substitute? It comes back to the, if you remember years ago when, when Ted Turner, the, the media uh, superstar, said, you know, well, I don't want anybody dying for me. I don't want anybody dying in my place. I don't want anybody being my substitute to which my response was fine he won't be he's not but without that there is no forgiveness of sin without that there is a judgment to be faced and you just you face that judgment in your own merit and you'll see the justice of God not the mercy of God not the grace of God and that's what he's saying in verses 27 and 28 and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes the judgment, that puts, to, that, uh, that puts to rest a lot of this phony going to see God and coming back with a new message stuff that you hear in a lot of people in the New Age circuit today. You know, the, the near-death experience where I, I went and talked to God, I ta talked to Jesus, and he said, oh, go back and... Tell everybody they're cool, everything's all right, not to worry about it. That This lays that to rest. Man dies once. He doesn't die and then come back. Only one person has ever died and then come back uh, in, in a full sense of the word, and that was Jesus. He's the only one that is, I, I know he raised Lazarus from the dead, and there's some other things we don't go that way today. But I want you to say this puts, to, I want to say this puts to rest the whole idea of, well, people die, go see God, see the light, and then they come back. They might have a lot of stuff going on in their brain when they're near death and they a lot of chemicals flashing around that gives them some kind of a vision sort of experience, but it's not reality. 
It's appointed by God for a man or a woman to die one time, and after that's the judgment. No, no negotiations beyond that. No, well, let's try to work out a deal beyond that. Once death, then the judgment. So, verse 28, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Now, now what he's saying here is, is that there is judgment and if you want to survive that judgment, if you want to not face the, the punishment of that judgment, then there must be a substitute. And Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many to those who believe, to those who are his, his called ones, those who are his disciples. He has died one time, just once. Just like you'll die once, he died once. Your death is for the finality of facing God in judgment. Although scripture says if you're, if you're in Christ, you're already judged. So you get there and you, you find out you're, you're already judged through the blood of Christ. That's good. There'll be rewards. There'll be, there'll be some uh, uh, things going on there around the judgment of God, but you won't be judged in, in the way that a person outside of Christ will be because he's, you're already been covered by the blood of Christ and forgiveness has already been granted and, and, and your substitute is Jesus Christ. He says he's coming again. I mean, there's just this quick reference to the second coming of Christ. It says he, he was offered once to bear the sins of many. But he's coming again a second time for salvation, but without reference to sin. Now, you can read over that real quickly and say, well, that's no big deal. That's a big deal. First time he came, his reference was sin. As a substitute, as a sacrifice to shed his blood, to establish the new covenant, whereby sin might be forgiven for those who believe. The second time he's coming, and he's coming for salvation, but without any reference to sin. That is, he's coming for the ultimate and total and complete and final salvation of all who have believed. We talked about this. You know that you, if you're a Christian, you, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. You're being saved from the power of sin. But one day, gloriously, you will be saved from the very presence of sin. So it's, it's totally justified to talk about it. I have been saved. I am being saved. And one day I will be saved. There's past, present, and future tense to that. And that's what he's talking about here. He's going to come a second time, but without a reference to sin. He's going to come a second time for salvation. But that's to take those who are his into glory for their inheritance, which is an eternal inheritance, which is the gift of salvation that is eternal and forever and glorious with God. Huh. He just kind of throws that in. He's coming again. That's a reality and that's a truth and that's a glorious thing. And, and he's coming again for salvation without reference to sin, that last phrase, to those who eagerly await him. For salvation to those who eagerly await him. 
who look forward to his coming, who anticipate his coming, who, who gloriously desire his coming. So that's a mark of a Christian. That's a, that's a mark of a believer. You, you might easily say a believer is one who eagerly awaits his coming, his second coming. A believer is one who eagerly anticipates that he's coming again to, to get me out of this forever. I think that's the last time. I think that's the end of time. That's when everything comes to a close. But he's coming again for the salvation of those who eagerly await, await him. See, when I read a passage like this and, and meditate on a passage like this and, and think on a passage like this, a covenant with a death, a, a forgiveness in, with blood, a, a judgment but a substitute who bears that negative judgment on my behalf. I really do kind of feel like smart as they may be, the Stephen Hawkins, the Richard Dawkins, the, uh, the others of this world, are really the ones that are irrelevant. They've been blinded and they have blinded themselves to the truth of God's gracious offer of salvation. They have been blinded to see that they think they are their own God and they will stand if there is a God, if he ever, of course, talking now is, it's funny that back in 1988 in a history of time, he kind of implied that God was there and, and, he didn't understand all that, but there was a God behind all this. Now he's totally decided he has become God and he doesn't need any other God. So that's where the real problem comes. When we think we are all we need, when we think we are our creator and we are our sustainer and we will be our own redeemer if there is a redemption. The writer of Hebrews says, understand this, the covenant the covenant with God through Jesus Christ is secure and is sure and is right and it's come from the revelation of the Most High God, the living God. You say, well, you know, I, I, I can't prove it. No, that's true. But you can know it. You can know it through the power of the Holy Spirit changing your heart and your life. You can know it through the presence of Christ in your life, through his word, the voice of Christ, the face of Christ in his word that we talked about last week. You can know it because it's true, because it's real, and because it's right. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would once again just confirm to us your covenant. If we are in your covenant, if we are in Christ, that you will just confirm that in our own lives right now. And I pray, Father, that you would strengthen us
to be able to speak your truth boldly and without equivocation even in the face of all this foolishness that our world has come up with. Father, I pray for men and women here this morning that don't know you. I pray your Holy Spirit will move in their life. Call them to Christ. Break their heart. And bring them in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for others, Lord, you're leading to be a part of this church family that you'd make that clear to them even this very morning. Now, Father, we thank you for our time together. We praise you and we rejoice in you. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.